Well, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if we have not met, I am Clay Holland, um, senior pastor here at Christ the King, and I do want to welcome you and wish you a uh, happy Mother's Day, if that pertains to you. We are glad that you're spending part of that time here with us at Christ the King. Uh, we are going to be reading, I'm going to be reading in just a minute from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Uh, but before I do that, I wanted to let you know to keep an eye, if you're a member of Christ the King, to keep an eye on your email. This week, we're going to be sending out um, uh, an email with a video that's going to have some updates to our COVID protocols. So if you're a member, that will probably hit your email around Tuesday. If you're not a member, you're visiting with us, you'll be able to find that on our website uh, later on this week. So I do want you to keep an eye on that because some updates are coming your way. And so let's now look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to try to do the impossible this morning uh, because this, this is so theologically and biblically and applicatorily, which I don't actually think is a word, uh, but it's rich. Um, so follow along with me either in your Bible or on your phone or you can read the text on the screens here. I'm going to begin from Ephesians 4 in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do build us up together this morning in all of our diversity into the common purposes that you have set before us as your body, the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. E pluribus unum. As I learned it in fourth grade at McLeod Elementary School, that means out of many, one. Um, that is the Latin motto that you can find on the great seal of the United States of America. Having a seal, which was a, a two-sided you know, um, co collection of symbols that were meant to communicate the ideals of this new nation that was coming to fruition, was very important to the founding fathers. It was so important that on July the 4th, 1776, which was a pretty important day in American history, 
uh, the Constitutional Congress uh, commissioned Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin to design a seal. And what the founding fathers were trying to communicate with that phrase, e pluribus unum, was the solidarity of 13 colonies forming one nation. Each of the colonies, of course, would retain all of their unique characteristics. Georgia was not Massachusetts, for example, but they would be stronger by retaining the differences uh, that they held but joined together as one, out of many, one. Now, of course, over the years, this motto has served our nation very well, really as an aspirational goal to have one united people, not only in our geographic diversity, like the first 13 colonies, but in all of our diversity, our racial and ethnic diversity. This ethos of unity amidst diversity has been a part of our nation's heritage since its earliest days. It's meant to make us stronger. It's meant to make us harder to break apart. And it is meant to show the world the beauty and the virtues of freedom and liberty. Now, it is an aspirational goal, right? E pluribus unum. It is aspirational because, like anything else, this out of many one ethos is constantly under attack. You know, it's kind of under attack by us because we're human beings and we're selfish and we also very often want to work simply toward our own purposes. And this has been the way of the history of the world uh, really since its earliest days, since Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God. But it's tragedy when you see that ethos broken, right? It's very tragic. Over the course of time in American history, you have seen these times when it hasn't operated the way that it was intended to operate. The the Civil War, for example, or in the violence in the 1960s associated with the Civil Rights Movement, even this past year it has seemed to be a very tough season for that e pluribus unum ethos. But it's much more tragic when you see the e pluribus unum ethos begin to degrade in the people of God, in the body of Christ, in the church, whether that is defined as all of the people of God in all places and as all times, or you know, in a particular manifestation of that people of God in a, in a local church, a place like Christ the King. Because unity in diversity is a testament to the power of the gospel to bridge and to bring together what is by nature divided. First, our relationship with God, which cannot be brought together, which cannot be bridged, except through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, in being bridged together through Christ to God, we are also united to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. Many are made one. That's what God is cultivating among his people so that the gospel, the power of the gospel, might shine forth to the ends of the earth. And that is why the Apostle Paul spends so much time in his letter to the Ephesians pushing them toward unity. Pushing them toward unity. 
explaining the roots of our unity in diversity, and then pleading for us not uh, to revert back to the ethos of the world, which is separation, which is going our own way, which is pursuing all of our own ends, because that's our nature. It's easier for us to do that. Even as a church, it was easier for us to gather and to cohere around a, a, a common socioeconomic status. It's easier for us to gather uh, and to be cohesive around a similar political bent. It's easier for us to gather around neighborhoods that culturally just bleed into one another. It's easier for us to be a people that kind of express, the, express all of the same kind of gifts and the same talents. It's just easier that way. But, easier though it may be, that way of, 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 of gathering together is less effective in communicating the true power and the beauty of the gospel, which is that we are many, but we are also one. We are many, but we are also one. First, within the body of Christ or the church, we are many. Now, I'm going to actually start in our um, you know, consideration of this passage from the back and move ourselves toward the front. Because the Apostle Paul talks about the power of the diversity of the church in verses 7 through 12. But it's an important point and actually super freeing for us to realize that, that God does work in us as individuals. But he does that work on purpose. We're different. We're not all the same. But it's not random. It's purposeful. We have diverse gifts for common goals. That's what Paul is pushing us to see here. We have diverse gifts, but for common goals. First, we have diverse gifts. Now, when I say the word gifts here, I mean that technically in the biblical sense that the Bible teaches that when a person comes to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit is active in that person's life, cultivating in them gifts for ministry. And they're not all the same. These gifts are to be used uh, for Christ and for the strengthening of the rest of the body of Christ. So a gift in this sense is a skill or an ability that is given to you by God to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. You can see it here in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, for God's mission to be accomplished in the world, these can't all be the same, right? We have to be different. And so there's a diversity of gifts that are cultivated in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul points to a few of them here in Ephesians. This is not comprehensive. He goes into much more detail about this in other places, particularly in 1 Corinthians. But here are the few of the gifts that he points out. Some he called to be apostles. Apostles are witnesses to the risen Christ who were appointed by Christ himself to proclaim his word with authority in the church. Here's something that that means. Paul was an apostle. I am not. And you're not either. Paul's letters connote the very authority of God behind them. My sermons, as much as I would like to think differently, he says parenthetically, do not. They do not carry that same weight. 
Some he called to be prophets. In this context, a prophet is one, again, who speaks authoritatively for God himself. The word of a prophet is to be heeded not because of who the prophet is, but simply because the prophet is the mouthpiece for God. So you go into the Old Testament and you see a prophet like Isaiah being commissioned by God himself to be the mouthpiece of God for God's people. Isaiah was a prophet. I I'm not. Evangelists. Evangelists have a unique gift to be able to interact with those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, biblically speaking, all of us are called to be evangelists. We're all called to be about the work of representing Jesus in the world, but some are more uh, natural uh, in their interactions with people who aren't Christians. Some are, are, are just more at ease than others in doing that. Those are people that have the gift of evangelism. There are shepherds and teachers. The word for shepherd that is used here in verse 11 is translated as the word pastor in Latin. It refers to someone who is called by God to care for God's flock. Or as Jesus told Peter when he was reinstituting him for, to his ministry after Peter had denied him, Peter, feed my sheep. Now the food that the pastor has for the sheep, the pastor does not cultivate on his own. That food is the word of God and the sacraments and that's pretty much it. And the goal of pastors is to equip the saints, and that would be you, the goal of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. A pastor is like a player coach, like 1910 baseball, when the manager was also the left fielder, right? A pastor is called to minister to the flock. But if the pastor is the only one who ministers to the flock, that pastor has failed in his calling. Our calling is to equip you to minister to one another. That's our calling. It is to equip you for that work of ministry within the church. Now that, of course, is not an exhaustive list of gifts that God gives to his church. He is reminding us here that the church itself stands upon the foundations of the prophets and the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In other places, Paul talks about people having gifts of service and a spiritual gift of generosity and spiritual gift of hospitality and a spiritual gift of administration and others. But the point is this. The point is that these gifts are not to be used to build ourselves up. They're not to be used to build ourselves up. There is not a hierarchy of who is most important and who has the best, quote-unquote, gifts among the people of God. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians and you read about this, Paul spends like three whole chapters trying to convince them that one gift that they all want to have is not the best. That's really mainly one of his points. Why is that? Because we have diverse gifts for common goals. Paul points in this passage, again, not an exhaustive list, to three goals of the body of Christ. Three goals that we use our diversity to push forward within the church. The first is unity. It's here again in verse 13. The main goal of the work of equipping is unity in our faith and knowledge of Jesus. Now, unity in the church seems to be very important to Paul. 
because if you're sick of me preaching about it these last like three whole weeks, it's only because it's all in here. Uh, he, he uses that word again in verse 13. But it's important because it is a testament Unity in the church is a witness. Unity in the church is a proof of concept, if you will, that Christ really is strong enough to break down the bonds that separate us as human beings and to unite us in a common profession of faith in a common Lord. Whether those walls are socioeconomic or racial or political or geographical. Unity. The second common goal is maturity. Look at verses 13 and 14 where Paul writes this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, so that, this is the purpose behind that, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We minister to one another to work together to equip one another to live in this world consistently and with wisdom. Wisdom is the art of biblical living. It is staying grounded in Christ. It is staying true to the scriptures when staying true to the scriptures is very hard to do. And we live in a world where it is very difficult to stay true to what it means to be a follower of Christ under the authority of God's world. And it's not only in the world, it's also in the church. Paul is calling us not to be blown around by every wind of doctrine that may come and blow itself in here if it is contrary to the word of God. We minister to one another that we may grow in maturity. And finally, the common goal of edification. That's in verse 16. We minister to one another that we may be built up, that we may be strengthened, encouraging one another to live as followers of Jesus in a place, in a time, in a world where it's very, very hard to do that. So we weep with one another when we weep. We rejoice with one another when we rejoice and we speak the truth in love to one another when we are wandering away from the things of God. Do you see how we need the diversity of the church to be able to do this? If we were all the same and we all had the same gifts, we would be, you know, we would only hit one note. We wouldn't hit all of the notes. Because sometimes what is needed in our lives is simply for somebody to come over to our house and to sit next to us on the sofa and to put their arm around us and simply to weep with us. Sometimes what is needed is for somebody to come and and do a physical act of service, uh, to, uh, to bring a meal, to write a note. Sometimes what is needed is for one of your brothers and sisters in the faith to challenge you in love with what is true because you're wandering on a dangerous path. We are different. Hands, feet, arms, legs, heads, they don't all do exactly the same thing, but they all work in sync that the body may go and do what the body is called to do. The problem is that we have artificially created hierarchies in this body. 
We being all of us simply because we're, we're human. This isn't new. Paul points to this directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So this is not like a new thing in the church. But for some reason we have created a culture where certain people with certain gifts stand out and kind of become like rock stars in a very small subculture called, you know, the church. Um, and it's particular, I'm going to tell you a secret. This is not really a secret. You already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is really hard for pastors. This is a really hard thing for pastors. You know, between about 2000 and 2010, half of the people that I knew that were preparing for ministry were wanting to be the next Tim Keller. Everybody kind of wanted to be the next Tim Keller. And, every, and we kind of all started to believe this thing that the only valid ministry was, the, was ministry in a major global city. You know, if you can do ministry in the heart of a major city, then you're really doing ministry. And if you've been a pastor in 40 years in the middle of Iowa to a bunch of farmers, well, that's cute. Because you're not really, you know, changing the culture, you know, or, you know, whatever it is that that means. Um, and what's been the result of all of us kind of trying to do that? Us and with a small U, really. Well, one is burnout. It's a really hard day when somebody kind of finds out that they're not gifted for that, right? But another is injury. Injury. In the last 10 years, influential pastors in influential churches have hurt themselves. And they've hurt people and they have hurt families trying to maintain the image. You know, trying to kind of keep this sort of image going. It's a temptation, I think, for every pastor that I know, uh, including the one that is standing before you right now. But it's also a temptation, I think, for all of us to highly value certain acts of service and certain gifts and to be dismissive of others. The Bible never does that. The Bible never does that. The Bible assigns equal value to the person that goes into the nursery and rocks the baby as the one who tries to lead a seventh grade boy's Bible study. Have you ever tried to do that? You're the only one talking. You know, or the one who's like crawling around on the floor with kindergartners trying to put, you know, puzzles together to the ones who are warmly greeting people into our fellowship, to the ones who are putting communion elements together so that we may partake of the body and the blood of Jesus. They're different, but they're of equal value in the unity of the body of Christ, all purposeful if done for the edification of the church. Think about it this way. Let's say that next fall you go to a football game. I'm hoping that next fall I go to a football game. Uh, that, would be, that would be a win, right? So let's say next fall you go to a football game and, and your team, you know, at a critical moment, the running back takes the ball and breaks through and runs 60 yards for a touchdown. What is it that you have just experienced and seen? Well, what you've really just experienced is one person running 60 yards, scoring a touchdown. The whole team goes down there and mobs him. He gets all the glory. But you go home later that night and you watch the replay. You're watching SportsCenter. And they show the exact same play, but they show that play in slow motion. What do you see if you watch that in slow motion? Well, you see a whole bunch of things. You see 11 different people doing 11 different things that made that one play happen. The center 
makes a good snap to the quarterback. The quarterback places the ball perfectly for the running back. The guard pulls around and takes out the linebacker. The tight end goes out there and blocks off the safety. Even the wide receivers who hate doing this are blocking their guy, their cornerbacks, you know, out there. All of that so that that running back can run 60 yards. If one of those people had not done the role that they were called to do, that play would not have happened. Now let's say for just a second that you hate sports and that resonated with you not at all. If you are the conductor of a symphony, what is it on the podium in front of you? It is a score, it is a sheet of music that has every single part listed. First violin, second violin, cello, trumpet, French horn, the whole thing. And they're all different. They're all playing different notes. And so let's say it's a, it's a two-week performance of a particular symphony. And on the, you know, on the fifth day, the, the, the second trumpeter said, you know what, tonight I'm sick of being the second trumpeter. I'm sick of this part. It's getting boring to me. I'm going to play on my trumpet the first violin part. And everybody does that. Chaos, right? Cacophony. It's awful. But if each instrument plays the part that is set out before them, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is as it is meant to be. You see, we are many. We're different. Working together for common goals. But we're also one. Within the body of Christ, we are many, but we are one. The Apostle Paul uses the word one seven times in three verses. You do not have to, here's a a Bible reading tip for you. You This is free, you don't have to go to seminary for this. If an author uses a word that many times in that few number of verses, it's important. You should probably pay attention to it. It's actually the title of our entire sermon series. One body. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is the the concept that he is pushing us toward. Although we are many, we are in Christ and through the power of the Spirit, we're actually one. We're one body, many working together, different gifts, different skills, common goals. Because of one spirit. The Holy Spirit applies salvation to you, but then it also knits us together with all of our differences into this unified whole. There is one hope. The trajectory of your life in Christ is purposeful and it is leading inexorably to the new heavens and the new earth. Our call is to live our lives in the presence in the light of the certainty of this future. One Lord. This world is not governed by chance. It's not impersonal. It is governed by Jesus Christ. There's one faith. We are not a people with just faith in faith. We are people with faith in Christ. And there's one faith that saves. And it is faith alone in Christ alone. There is one baptism. Like I talked about this morning, every time we commit a sin, we don't rush back to get rebaptized. Every time we go through up and downs in our lives, we're not, you know, saying, oh, I commit myself again to you, God, and I'm being baptized again. Although I did have one friend who's a pastor in this denomination that got baptized seven times, five of which were in one church. Uh, But there's one baptism. This one baptism shows us that it is Christ's dogged pursuit of us. That God is committed to us. It's about his faithfulness, not our faithfulness. One God and Father of all. There is but one 
God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's not one inch of this universe that God does not grab hold of or point to and say, this is mine. Why is this important? Because everything in this amazingly rich passage is pushing us to the end of verse 16. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the key. Love is the key. What are we without love? Well, without love, we're basically just another common interest group coming together to have our desires met in certain spheres. Without love, we become consumers of religious goods and services. Without love, we allow our diverse opinions on secondary issues to take over as primary issues. Without love, in essence, we kind of become like a, to use Paul's metaphor and to extend it, we kind of become like a big autoimmune disease where each part of the body is attacking other parts of the body and it's weakening the whole thing. That's what happens without love. This has been a year that has been a grave challenge to love. I'm actually super encouraged by our congregation, how we have met each other and how in fits and starts and kind of we've sort of wrestled through all these things and, and tried to emerge with love on the other side uh, through all of the challenges that have been presented to us. But you know, here's something that I know. I, I'm gonna take a, I'm gonna take a guess that I, in, in this congregation only, I think that I've talked to more people. If you, if you put everybody's perspective on a, on a line, you know, on kind of COVID-19 responses and how we should be doing things and all that, and it's just like one big line. I think I've talked to more people that are on more points along that line, probably just because of my, you know, role here at Christ the King. And one of the things that I know, just having talked to a whole bunch of people who have a whole lot of different perspectives, is one of the things that is easy, no matter where it is that you fall on that line, is that it is easy to feel judged. It is easy to feel judged. It is easy to have that creep of shame, you know, kind of enter in. It doesn't matter if you're hoping, you know, for uh, the church or the culture or the city to move more aggressively, you know, kind of in reopening with COVID. One of the things that you can feel, if that's your opinion, is you can feel judged. And you can feel judged rather harshly. Or if you're here and you've been more cautious, you know, you know, particular taking caution with your children and others, and, and that's been your approach, one of the things that you can feel is judged. And you can feel that harshly. But what if we don't do that? What if we don't do that? What if we recognize, because this is the thing that I know, and if this does not represent you, I want to talk to you badly. Because one of the things that I know is that over this past year, everybody is carrying burdens. Everybody is carrying burdens. One of the things that uh, I'll never forget, one of our former pastors, Richard Colquitt, preached a sermon, he stood right here one day, and he said, when you're interacting with another human being, one of the things that you can do to make that interaction most purposeful is to imagine that that other person has a sticker on their forehead that says, fragile, handle with care. I'll never forget that, fragile, 
handle with care because I think in my own ministry experience that at no time has this been more true for more people all at once than it is right now. Fragile handle with care. May God give us the grace by his spirit to do so. Why? Because we are many. We're different. We're different in our opinions. We're different in our approaches. We're also different in our skills. We're different in our gifts. But we are one, having the common purposes of unity, of edification, and of love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing what we could never do, which is to bridge uh, the the chasm between us and our sin and our Father and his holiness. And thank you that in bridging that through your life and your death and your resurrection, you also bridged our divides with one another, that we gather in this place at this time solely around you and our confession of faith in one Lord and one faith and through the the power of one baptism. Father, make us love, one. Make us one that we may build each other up in love. We ask it in your name. Amen.